On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with Scott Radley sitting in, that's me, we are going to be talking about economics, about finances, about concerns people are having about money, understandably, with everything going on. We're also going to be chatting about the NHL draft lottery, success or huge failure, and Canadian rock legend Kim Mitchell joins us to talk about his career and his new album. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let us start with a bit of a splash of cold water. I hate to do this, but hey, it's the real world and it's the world we live in right now. There, were a couple, there was a survey that came out a couple of weeks ago, and it was remarkably optimistic about the state of people's finances. And essentially it said 25% of people, all 25% of Canadians thought things were looking really good for them financially, that their, their economics in their house and everything else was, was on the uptick, that they were going to be better in a better position now than they were at this point last year. And after that, a large number of people after that 25% were, were neutral at worst saying, you know, things are going to be all right. Well, today we offer a slightly different perspective. Because according to the CIBC, 79% of Canadians say they are concerned about their financial future. And I'll tell you, this, to me, fits in exactly with what I think most of us would expect. Four out of five Canadians concerned about where things are right now, uh, worried about a recession. And by the way, that's up from 55% in December. So we're up almost a quarter, almost a quarter since December. Jamie Golubek is the Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning with CIBC. He joins us now. Jamie, thanks for doing this today. Yes, hi. How are you? I am well. Uh, when you saw these numbers, would I be accurate in saying you probably can't be too shocked by these? Yeah, we're not shocked at all. I mean, this was just, uh, you know, we did a random survey. It was all weighted and everything like that, so statistically, you know, accurate. But, uh, you know, this really confirms what we've been hearing from our clients, that people are worried. Uh, people are worried about the future. They're worried about uh, recession next year, and people are concerned. And uh, so we were not surprised at all by by these results. I'm I'm a little surprised it's not higher, and not that there's not at least twenty percent of people who might be in okay financial shape. But if you're just saying, are you concerned about what your financial position is going to be and where things are going? I thought even more than seventy nine or eighty percent of people would say, yeah, we're heading for some difficult times, perhaps. Yeah, well, look, 79% is pretty high. That's four it out is. of every five people, right? So there there are people that are financially secure. Uh, people have good jobs. Uh, people are working full-time. People have money saved away. People have no debt. But again, that's very few people. So, I mean, I think 79% is as high as I've ever seen it. Uh, you know, remember, we just did this six months ago. We do this regularly, this sort of financial uh, survey on Canadians. And just in December, uh, it was 55% that were worried. So right. this is, a, you know, an increase by 50%, right? And even, and look, you're absolutely right. Four out of five is an extraordinarily high number. But even the people who have money stashed away or are invested in the stock market or whatever else, uh, I thought, you know what, even some of them would have worries that the market might go down or that their savings might dwindle or whatever else. But yeah, four out of five is, uh, does not paint a rosy picture. Now, when people feel this way traditionally, typically, what do they do? What, what is their behavior when they start to worry that the economy is in desperate situations? Well, it's actually self-fulfilling prophecy because, of course, what they do is they start adjusting their financial spending. 
in fact, a survey when I asked people that question, and uh, basically almost almost two thirds, like 63% of people that we surveyed, said that they had significantly cut down their discretionary spending. And uh, over half of them said that they need to get a better handle on their finances for the year. So that's a typical behavior that we see when people are worried about the future. Right. And people think that, you know what, I have to save for my own family, but that means not buying something, which means not investing in other businesses, which affects other families. And so it becomes, as you say, that self-fulfilling circle of doom in the economy. Absolutely. And of course, there are many places uh, that just you cannot spend money right now, just depending exactly you know, where you're located. You know, I'm here in the, in the greater Toronto area and uh, you, know, you can go to a patio, but you can't eat in a restaurant yet. Right. So you can't even spend the money if you want to. And travel is down, you know, 95 uh, percent in terms of, uh, you know, you're going to talk later about Niagara Falls. I mean, tourism, you know, devastated. Right. Um, all the public facilities, the cultural institutions, the galleries, everything is closed. So in other words, there's a lot less opportunity to spend money on these discretionary expenses, not to mention air travel, uh, which has been decimated. That said, are people, if you're advising people financially, are they not correct to feel this way? Is this reaction, I know we want to spend to put money into the economy, but if you're looking after your family, is this not a natural and a correct response to something like this? It may be. But, I mean, the concern that we have is that people are, are, are acting emotionally and with a gut reaction and don't actually have a financial plan. Uh, we're big fans of, of people having a written financial plan. We actually go in, you speak to a you know, financial professional, financial advisor, someone that you trust, uh, someone that will look at your situation, uh, look at how much income is coming in, look at what your expenses are, look at other things like any debt that you might have, whether it's mortgage or credit card, and ultimately help you uh, sort of get a realistic handle on your spending and your budgeting. Because that's really what it comes down to, is making sure that you've got enough money to achieve the goals that you want to do, not just for the current year, but for the future, whether it's putting a kid through post-secondary education or saving for a down payment, saving for a wedding reception, buying a new car. There's all kinds of goals. And, and I think uh, getting the right financial advice uh, can really help you be on top of it, even during a time of, economic uh, pessimism. I will say from your survey, um, a little more than a third of people say their goal this year is to save as much as possible. Again, uh, good idea or not, I absolutely understand why that would be their theory. And another third, give or take a little more than a third, say they're just not going to take on any more debt. Um, Again, sounds smart, even though it has a uh, you know, for some people anyway, even though it has a, a real implication on the economy. It's a, it's a, put it this way, maybe even not smart. It's a natural thing that you would do, that you get into a defensive posture because you're feeling a little bit under attack or under stress. And so, well, listen, I'm just going to stash everything up. Yeah, and again, nothing wrong with that at all. You just want to make sure that you're not doing it just for the sake of doing it, but you want to enjoy your life to the extent that you can in terms of what you can spend it on. Uh, but you also want to make sure that you're doing it within a bigger time frame. So, yes, we're all worried right now, and, and I'm worried, and people are worried about the future because we don't know how long uh, the pandemic's going to go on. We don't know if there'll be a cure. We don't know if there'll be a vaccination. We don't know when that will happen. So when would life return to normal or quasi-normal? No one knows that. Um, but at the same time, it's important to have a plan and not just to focus on the next six months, but also the next five years, 10 years, 15 years. You want to make sure that what you're doing is part of a bigger picture in terms of your financial goals. 
Rob, where do you think this is going to have the biggest impact? I mean, we mentioned tourism and I, I know that's going to be in there, but where else? What, what other industries or parts of the economy are going to suffer the most because of everybody or so many people seemingly deciding to hold on to their money? Again, tourism, travel, discretionary expenses, like are people buying as many cars anymore? Mm. Like people, no one's going anywhere. I mean, now starting, you know, people are starting to, you know, travel to the extent they can go up north and things like that. Uh, you know, things like that. We've already seen issues with housing market, right, in terms of, you know, new home sales and, and things like that. Uh, there's other, you know, major discretionary, you know, entertainment, uh, live sports, live theater, you know, all that is gone right now. So there's an enormous amount of cutbacks in those areas, sort of big ticket items. And, uh, you know, where people are spending money, of course, is, you know, the stuff like groceries. And what about clothing? Are people buying clothing anymore? I mean, are they buying suits to go to work? No one's going to work. So, you know, these are the, these are the issues that we're seeing just on a very basic retail level. It is very true. For all you know right now, I could be talking to you from my basement in my underwear. Now, I, for the record, I'm not, but I could be. And, and, you know, I bet there's an awful lot of people doing Zoom meetings and everything else who the top half is put together, the bottom half is not so much. But that goes to your point about why would you buy clothes? My car right now, and I don't know about yours, again, I'm working from home, I'm getting about two months to the gallon, which is, you know, great on saving for gas, but it's hurting all the gas retailers and everyone else. So, you know, it, it, it's going to affect it. And you mentioned housing. If people are saying that they are not going to take on debt, I would think that would be one of, if not the number one thing that people are going to be skittish about. If you don't know what your job is going to look like, or if you have a job, are you going to invest in the biggest investment you make in your life? I, I have my questions. Absolutely. Certainly, if there's income uncertainty, you're not sure about your job, you're not sure where the income's coming in, if you're self-employed and your business has been shut down, certainly you're not going to make that, that major purchase. That being said, you know, we should just be fair to the discussion. We are in an historic uh, interest rate environment right now, historic lows. So, I mean, if someone was ever thinking about buying that home, if real estate prices maybe are slightly down and, uh, and interest rates are, you know, hovering around the 2% rate for a mortgage, uh, it may actually be the right time, depending on all the other circumstances, uh, to look at uh, maybe buying that first home. When I asked you at the beginning about surprises and not being surprised, uh, there's something else that we found in this poll, and that is the greatest number of those who say they are saving and not taking on debt right now are in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, uh, areas that have been, especially Alberta, that has been very hard hit. That would not be a surprise to anybody, correct? That That those are the uh, areas that are really right. buckling down? Yeah, especially Alberta. I mean, Alberta, 69%, right? And I think it's really, really you know, cutting the discretionary spending at 69% versus the sort of average of 63%. So, you know, significantly higher in Alberta. And we know Alberta has been devastated with the price of oil, the oil and gas sector. Now, I was even in down in, in Alberta uh, in March back just before this thing started. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of vacancies in the downtown area. Office towers are empty. The oil and gas companies have slowed down. You know, and this is all pre-COVID-19, so very, very difficult situation in Alberta right now. And to your point of explaining all this, does that not, when the cycle doesn't churn, does that not translate into possibly even bleaker days? I mean, I hate to be such a downer, but if, if you've got an economy that's already troubled and now nobody wants to spend any money, that sounds like it makes it even worse. Well, it, it certainly is problematic, and that's why we really have to encourage, you know, hopefully if the, if the health concerns go away and, and people start to feel more comfortable going back to work and the economy starts to open up, and this might lead to a global recovery one day, although we're not seeing 
you know, mm-hmm. great trend, you know, in the States and other countries. So, you know, I think it's a global issue and uh, we need to really think about uh, ultimately how it's going to play out globally because, of course, much of, you know, what we do in Canada, there's a lot of big global market and we've got to be, you know, we're all connected. So, uh, yes, it, it, it's not a rosy picture right now, that's for sure. Jamie, just before I let you go, is there anything other, you mentioned, okay, so the the virus goes away or some other things that are out of our control get better. Is there any other way to get people to spend money? Like, is there something you can, that the people in, I don't even know who, but uh, can, can do to encourage people to spend, or does this have to be something that just happens naturally because confidence naturally gets better? Yeah, I mean, look, interest rates are already rock uh, bottom low. We can't get much lower. It's basically zero. So in other words, uh, you know, they're making it as cheap as possible in terms of if you want to buy a home, for example. Um, but, you know, but really it comes down to people's confidence, people's confidence in the job market. You know, how can we get people back to work? That's where the government can play a role. I mean, there are issues that we've talked about before in terms of, you know, the emergency response benefits and you can only earn a thousand dollars and more than that. You lose the benefit. You know, is that incenting some people not to go back to work? Maybe. Right. So these are issues that the government is working on, the government's thinking about. But this is something that, you know, the government could play a role. I know the government is, you know, really wanting where it's safe to do so to get people back to work. And that's certainly important for the economy. But I think as people start to feel comfortable themselves about their personal outlook, uh, people will start spending and the economy will improve. Jamie Golenbeck, the Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Take care. Tomorrow is June 30th. That means that small businesses that have deferred their GST and HST payments, HST payments must make them now. And the day after that, Canada Day, is when a lot of small businesses now have to pay rent that is either just due or that has also been deferred. And the question becomes, what then? Because a lot of these small businesses are still not in great shape. And if the bills are coming due, what happens if they maybe can't pay them or if it's going to cripple them? Well, let's bring in Laura Jones, who's the Executive Vice President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. She joins us now. Laura, thanks for doing this today. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. Do, uh, I even hate to get into this because it is, I mean, it really is very depressing, although it's really important. Um, do we have any idea what percentage of small businesses are really feeling a pinch right now with, not, I mean, not, I don't even just mean in general, I assume that's almost all of them. I mean, yeah. specifically with these deadlines coming up tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, I think what it's important for people to realize is that while things start are starting to look a little bit more normal on the surface, we have, you know, just over half of businesses across Canada are now fully open. Um, so you may be going starting to go and think about getting a haircut or, you know, you're, you're, you're able to go into some of those retail stores now. Um, under the surface, things are very, very far from normal. So you only have one in five businesses making normal revenues right now. And this is after months, for many of them, of being totally shut down. So they've got all that accumulated debt, many bills they're worrying about, um, and they're, they're, you know, most of them are not even close to back to normal revenue yet. And only one in three are back to normal staffing. So things on Main Street in terms of the economic recovery, I mean, we are still very, 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 very far away um, from being normal. And the anxiety and the stress that customers don't see, because a business owner is not going to put that on display for you. Like, they're going to give you the warm (laughs) smile. They're going to say, welcome back. So great to see you. 
And you're not going to see any of that. But we are we are hearing it on our phone lines and we are reading about it in our surveys. And it is very, very real. And I think it's important for everybody to understand that that's what's going on, because as customers, we also have a role to play um, to get back out there and support our favorite businesses or they won't be there. Even established businesses are really struggling right now. Yeah, you're not seeing too many business owners play Eeyore at the front door and, uh, you know, do the old dour thing. But I, I can certainly understand it. And the big question to me then becomes, Laura, so now they're on the hook to have to pay this, whether it's rent or whether it's the HST or GST or whatever. What if they can't? Do we know yet what happens if they can't? Well, I mean, we've we've got a number of businesses um, in our survey saying that they're looking at winding down. They're actively considering winding down their business. And there's a lot of uncertainty right now about what's going on. So GST payment is a big bill um, that's due and uh, uh, tomorrow. And rent is another big one due on Wednesday. Now, we did get a little bit of good news this morning from the federal government. They're extending the rent relief uh, program for another month. So for some businesses, that will be good news. The challenge is we still have a lot of businesses who don't have access to that program, um, either because the, they, they're not down 70% in their revenues, which is a very, very high bar for your loss. Imagine if we were to tell people to qualify for any kind of income support, you need to have lost more than 70% of your, you know, like it really is a, um, a very, very high bar. Um, that we've set there. Um, and then the other reason, of course, is landlords aren't, um, aren't participating um, in, in some cases, uh, either because they can't afford to themselves or um, for other reasons. But if, if a company, if a small business can't pay its GST or HST payment to the government, I, I, I find it hard to believe that the government is going to come after them full guns a-blazing because the government can't afford to lose thousands or whatever of small businesses across the country. Now, I don't know that they're going to do nothing, but I, I'm I'm skeptical that they're going to come down with, with a hammer, or do we expect that may be the case? Well, hopefully they won't. And, you know, they have been, we know they've been scrambling to come up with, um, you know, to, to, to get various relief programs out. And it's been a, a lot of work um, to figure out what this looks like. And so they're not always right on top of the things that they need to be saying to people. But it would be very reassuring to businesses to say, look, you're not going to accumulate those penalties and interest on your late HST, um, GST payments if you don't make your payment in full uh, tomorrow. That would be very reassuring. And that reassurance hasn't hasn't come. And, and that's the challenge. I mean, uncertainty, we know, is, just, you know, it's just it's very, very stressful for people. And there's just a ton of uncertainty about, you know, how long will these programs continue? Will they be improved? Um, you know, yeah, will I be on the hook for those penalties and interest for that mm-hmm. HST that I couldn't pay on time? Maybe because some people haven't paid me um, the money they owe me. Right. Right. Um, you know, so it's it's really, um, you know, all of those things are adding up to, um, you know, they, they just add, pile on to a to a, to a huge uh, pile of stress that business owners are under right now. I mean, I, I think business owners are doing a remarkable job of holding it all together and, you know, putting in place new cleaning protocols and putting a smile on their face for their customers on top of all the stress they're facing with respect to um, the relief programs. Well, and Laura, look, I don't own a business. Uh, I can't speak as a business owner, but I'm trying to put myself into their shoes for a moment. And if we get to the point where you're on the hook now for a large payment that you have to make and you can't do it, 
I'm thinking if you're not winding down your business, the next step, the next logical step would be, well, I've got to lay off employees and that then exacerbates the problem because now you have more people who need to be on the public money. Well, that's right. It becomes a kind of a, um, um, we're moving in the wrong direction away from economic recovery. Yeah, it really becomes um, when, a spiral at that when point. When we do that. But I, I mean, I was talking to an established business owner um, over the over the weekend, my, my hairdresser, who's always packed, hard to get an appointment, great, great guy. Um, and they've been in business for at least two decades. I mean, they're, they're amazing. And he was telling me, you know, it, they're down to 50% of capacity um, in terms of what they can do they're, because they're taking half an hour to clean between, you know, between having customers in. Um, they're doing a great job of that. They, they had their immune compromised customers come in first, um, you know, and did a special week for them. They, I mean, they're really, really doing an amazing job and thriving business. And he's not sure they're going to make it. He said, I'm not sure we can outrun the debt. Um, because their landlord's not giving them any break and they're at 50% capacity. And it's not clear, you know, how fast that picture um, in terms of the capacity is going to change and whether there might be a second wave, you know. So these are all the kinds of things that people are worried about. Again, you know, I've been going to him for long enough that he'll, he'll you know, he tells me the, the straight goods. But I got a big smile. Welcome back. So happy to have you back. <laughs> I bet. It wasn't until it wasn't until you know we got into the, um, you know, into the into the, uh, the the chats that you have with your hairdresser that that the real the real picture started to emerge. It's been incredibly 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 tough. And, and here's the on a lot of personal debt to you know to 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 get back just to where they are now. And where they are now is not sustainable. And here's the really tricky part, um, because we're talking about HST, GST payments, but as you mentioned, July 1st is also rent. Landlords are not all greedy corporate landowners. There are some of them who are small business people who happen, that's their job to own property. And they now are also on the hook because if then the small businesses who can't necessarily pay their rent, can't pay those small business, then you've got a whole second group of small business people who can't pay their bills. It just becomes this impossible situation. Yeah, no, it, the ripple effects from Main Street businesses um, going down, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's going to be, um, it, it, it's not going to be, it, it's not going to be pretty for this, for this country. Um, we need to be very, very focused on what it takes to get healthy businesses to be as many healthy businesses as possible, you know, through bridge them through this gap. Um, so that, you know, we have employment, we have, because when a business goes down, it's not just the business, as you said, it's their, it's the people they rent from, from. it's their suppliers, it's, um, their employees, business owner, their employees, their family members, you know, the, like, these aren't just sort of numbers of businesses we're talking about. These are people and these are people's livelihoods. Um, and people's well-being and people's, you know, that is going down um, over this. So it's it's really important to do what we can. And, and that government needs to do more, in my view, to bridge some of the gaps, particularly on programs like rent, um, to get us to the other side. Uh, that's going to be critical to Canada's economic recovery. But customers are also critical. We launched a Small Business Every Day campaign last week. And the campaign is all about, and we know there are lots of other great campaigns launching 
Uh, there's one in, in uh, that's, I think, coming out of Toronto called The Big Spend, and they're encouraging people to spend, I think it's on July 25th. Um, and there, there are many others. There's a group called um, uh, Distantly, where you can fund your own, uh, your favorite small business um, who may not be open yet um, and help them get back to normal. So there's a, a, an important role that we as individuals Absolutely. play. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah, we, we can't just, we were just talking about tucking your money away. We, we can't do that completely. Uh, Got to run. Laura Jones, Executive Vice President, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. We're going to talk about one more thing to do with the economy. We'll be done. Uh, But it's a hard hit area. We're going to talk about Niagara. With the borders closed, with American tourists not being able to come over, with tourists really grinding to a halt. Things are rough. How bad? Well, the mayor says that 98% of those who work in the tourism industry are currently off work. Jim Diodati, the mayor of Niagara Falls, who made that comment, joins us now. Jim, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Scott. This, uh, I hate to put it so bluntly, but this right now sounds like a problem without much of a solution because this is not something that's really in your hands to solve. No, uh, and the border being closed, you know, it's a double whammy. I mean, it's killing us, but we need it to be closed. And I've been on a number of calls binationally with mayors on both sides of the border, as well as provincially, mayors all along the border. And we all feel the same way. You know, the old saying that until you get your house in order, don't open up your front door. And we realize that they're having some serious concerns in the U.S., and we don't need that to happen here. We've worked far too hard. We've made too many sacrifices to keep our numbers down. And by opening the door simply for for money, we think the solution, as was just alluded to on the call with Marvin Ryder, would be possibly the staycation, where Ontarians would stay here instead of typically crossing the border to spend their money in the U.S., If they spend it here, it'll help. It won't recover, and it won't replace, because typically 25% of the tourists to Niagara Falls come from the U.S., yet they represent 50% of the revenue. Americans spend large. We're definitely going to feel the effect of not having them this year, but looking at all things, better to have some short-term pain for long-term gain. One of the things I was thinking today when I was thinking about Niagara and with the idea of staycation or Canadians, Ontarians going is... It's, and I don't think it's just here. If something is near you, if you live near something, it doesn't often seem like it's that big a deal to you. I remember going down to Chicago and going to Wrigley Field and the and I was just blown away. It was just amazing. The people who live there, though, oh, it's just Wrigley Field. And I get the sense sometimes that's the case with Niagara Falls. It's right around the corner. So oh, we don't think of it as that big a deal. How do you get those people who may have lived here for a long time and just got used to it being close so it's not that enticing or whatever to go, you know what, I'm going to go give it another look. Well, it's funny you mention that. And I say that all the time. I said, sometimes some of the best hidden gems are right in your backyard. And it's like the old story, Field of Diamonds, you know, that you think you need to go far away to see something neat or an expert is simply a stranger with a briefcase because if they're from (laughs) far away, they must be smarter. And in the same way, people think it must be nice if you go far away. Yet, in Niagara Falls, I laugh because the only time we go down to the falls typically is when company comes from somewhere else and they want to go see the falls. And that's when you realize when they go, oh my gosh, the landscaping, Queen Victoria Park, the attractions, this place is spectacular. And just uh, last, last week, we hosted the Minister of Tourism, Lisa McLeod. We went to the Butterfly Conservatory. And, and you realize, you know, I haven't been here in many years. It is amazing. 
and on the Hornblower. They they get over two million visitors every year, and there's it's the number one attraction in Canada. Niagara Falls is the number one leisure destination in Canada. And we've got so much. I always joke. I say we have a buffet of fun and excitement. There's something here for everyone. And regionally, we've got 130 wineries. We've got 30 golf courses. We've got great beaches, especially along Lake Erie. And of course, all the offerings in Niagara Falls and Niagara Lake with shopping and attractions. So there's so much to do. But yet, a lot of the time, people pick their destination farther away. And I'll tell you, similarly, Scott, what really hit home for me, a number of years ago, our family, me and my kids and my wife, we traveled across Canada. We went both ways by train. And I thought, oh, my gosh, when you see Canada, Lake Louise and Banff and Jasper, and we were up in Northwest Territories and B.C. and Prince Edward Island and Quebec and, and Northern Ontario, there is so much beauty. People come from all over the world to come to Canada. And what do we do? We plan our vacations to Europe or Australia or the U.S. So it's a little bit of a mental thing. But I think if people realize and realign what they're thinking of doing, they'll realize we've got so many amazing things right here. It is, uh, I, I was watching an old episode, and we unfortunately have to run, I was watching an old episode of The Office the other day where Jim and Pam get married on the, you know, on the boat, on the Maid of the Mist. And when we see some place that's close by on international television, we go, wow, look, that's right there. That's really cool. And yet we don't go ourselves because we don't think it's that cool until someone else reminds us that it's that cool to do it. So there you go. It is, it's right there. And uh, you know what? We may all be doing it because... We don't, we're not going across the border anytime soon. Uh, sorry we couldn't be longer. Mayor Jim Diodati from Niagara Falls, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. My, my pleasure, Scott. Thank you. As I say, it is right there. And we, we often ignore it because it is right there. Same with things like the CN Tower. When was the last time you were up the CN Tower? It's got to be 25 years for me. And yet whenever people come here, they go, hey, can we go up the CN Tower? And you're like, yeah, okay. But it's been, we just get used to it. Dundurn Castle. When was the last time you went to Dundurn Castle? See? You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Many of you probably tuned into your TV sets late last week to watch the NHL draft lottery for two reasons. One, because you always watch the NHL draft lottery. Or two, because we are so desperate for any kind of sports that we will tune into anything that is sort of live and kind of connected to sports. Well. What happened next, um, not what anyone expected. So it's a, it was a much more complicated procedure, I think, than it had necessarily had to be. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But rather than one of the worst teams in the league winning the draft lottery and earning the right to take a superstar player who could turn around a franchise, instead, a team that is in the playoffs or with a chance to get into the playoffs will win that player, which has caused... Well, it's caused some people to say this was genius by the NHL and others to be outraged, especially in places like Detroit and Ottawa, who probably feel like they got hosebagged on this whole thing. Sean Fitzgerald is managing editor and feature writer with The Athletic. He joins us now. Sean, how are you today? Scott, how are you doing? I am probably better than the NHL's PR people today trying to answer all the questions about this draft lottery. Yeah, I mean it's it's been a it's been a head scratcher of a one, but I mean the, the other problem is is that the NHL sort of got played a hand that I mean they didn't have a lot of time to plan. Uh, nobody, at least not many people with living memory, have ever tried to to deal with a draft lottery 
with a global pandemic sort of raging across North America. So, I mean, in some ways you want to say, okay, they did the best they could with the limited amount of time that they had. And in other ways, you know, if you are a fan of, say, the L.A. Kings, the Ottawa Senators, or certainly the Detroit Red Wings, you probably have some words that we couldn't say on the air. (laughs) More than likely. What? Okay, so when you say the NHL did the best they could, here's what I don't understand, and and it's not just the NHL that does this, Sean. It's it's sports leagues, it's businesses. There is a simple solution, and there is a complicated solution, and the default position is if it's complicated, we must go down that route because simple somehow just is too stupid. And the simple solution here would be if you're not in the playoffs, you're in the draft lottery, and then over and done, and we're all happy. Sure, but I mean, because the way the, the the league is set up with, I mean, obviously everybody knows the top four teams from the Eastern Conference, the top four teams from the Western Conference, based on points percentage, are now sort of in this preliminary round robin to you know figure out seeding, and 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 that can be undermined because it doesn't really matter. So are you gonna you know start your good players or are you gonna rest your good players, and then everybody else. Uh, the, you know, eight teams and eight teams are bracketed into sort of play-in series, and that's your Toronto Maple Leafs, your your Pittsburgh Penguins, um, and, and those sorts of teams. So it, it's not as representative. It's not sort of half and half that the teams that that maybe should have otherwise qualified for a piece of the draft lottery or a bigger piece of the draft lottery, they're still in that play-in round. So it's it's imperfect, and it it would have basically potentially if you with you know that theory would have given an oversized chance maybe um, to one of those teams that tanked and you know the Detroit Red Wings inarguably tanked and the Ottawa Senators you know depending on certainly how you feel about it, their owner uh, certainly did a tank job as well so do you want to reward that behavior not but are you not potentially doing that now and the only reason I say that is and you're you're exactly right with that but now that you have teams that are going to go into this playing round that could win the first overall draft pick, if you fall behind a couple of games to nothing in the play-in, how motivated are you if you don't really think you're going to win? How motivated are you to really play for that series win? Or how motivated are you just to say, ah, let's just tap the brakes here a little bit and hope that our lottery number comes up? Well, I mean, the only people who'd care about that would be likely watching from high up in the rafters or maybe from their home television, you know, back here in southern Ontario, if you're a Leafs fan. that If you're on the ice and you care about that sort of stuff, you're not going to be on the ice for very long. Uh, certainly not just in that game, but arguably in the league. Like, players don't care. They don't care. They don't, they don't even really look at who they're playing the next week in the regular season, right? Like, to, it's just today. Like, you know, when you're in a business where a torn meniscus or a ruptured Achilles or something could impact the way that you make a living. I don't know if you tend to look long range a lot. So, you know, is Austin Matthews going to be thinking, God, you know what, if we just tank this third game, I'm going to maybe get to play against, uh, you know, play on a line with Alexi Lafreniere next year. Like, no, it doesn't go like that. So I don't know if that plays into it as much. Um, In a way, I think maybe what the NHL has done is, you know, in its very small circle of things, been able to follow the NFL's guide in, you know, how do you turn a pandemic media cycle in your favor? And if you remember that, you know, earlier in this pandemic, in which we're now, what, 107, 110 days in, the NFL dominated sports coverage because it was the only sport that was doing things. And it was all around Tom Brady changing teams and, and the draft. So, you know, by doing this, by 
you know, extending the draft uncertainty to, you know, will Sidney Crosby or Connor McDavid or Austin Matthews get to play alongside a number one draft pick? It gets people talking about the NHL, maybe even outside the context of COVID. Uh, you, you mentioned Connor McDavid. I am trying to imagine what the response will be if the Edmonton Oilers somehow lose their first round and win the draft <laughs> win the draft lottery. Well, here's another one too, and this one feels a little bit like the Oracle and the Matrix movies. But you know what happens if you know the news just came out not that long ago that I think a eleven of two hundred and fifty NHL players who were you know cleared to compete in their small group on ice training sessions. 11 of 250 players just tested positive for COVID. So, you know, God forbid what happens if that happens more often and they don't even get to hold this playoff system. What happens to the draft lottery then? It's a great question. And, and, you know, to your point about the players on the ice, I agree with you. I don't think there's a player in the league who would go on the ice and say, hey, we can lose to get so-and-so. But I do think that there are, in the playoffs, especially in the NHL, you do see guys who play through injuries, who play through stuff, and you may see teams pull the shoot on those guys a little bit to say, "Yeah, don't you know? Don't come back. Don't risk injury. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Here's our here's our chance to you know we're not going anywhere with you hurt a little bit. So who knows? Who knows how that plays out? But <clears throat> I do think that if Edmonton or Pittsburgh or Toronto wins the lottery, uh, there may be people who slightly lose their mind or maybe more than slightly well i I counter that there's so much up in the air here um that you know what happens if Sidney crosby again heaven forbid test positive for covid what happens what happens if an outbreak you know happens in a cluster of you know hotels in las vegas if that's picked for a hub city like there are so many variables like innumerable like it's it's impossible to comprehend or to account for all of the things that can unfold over not just the next, you know, 30 or 40 days, but as this pandemic's taught us over the next 30 or 40 hours. Like there's so much up in the air that it's almost impossible to really start to, you know, think about, you know, will a team, you know, voluntarily tank because, you know, a team should voluntarily have to, you know, pull out because they don't have enough players who are healthy. We, I was talking with someone this morning. Um, are you a fan of the draft lottery as a as a thing period yeah i think it makes good business sense for the nhl in that you know the draft lottery is is a show now like it's its own it is it gives more fans more reason to hope it's you know think about baseball right like you know had baseball been able to start like if you're fans of a certain team you know here we are and you know, coming up on Canada Day, there'd be a bunch of teams that are already out of it, right? And then you got nothing, nothing for a long, 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 long time. So here, you know, with the draft lottery, you know, for example, let's just take it here that, you know, if you're a fan of the Ottawa Senators, they might not play again until friggin' January, right? Like, that's a long <laughs> time between on ice. And then you have, you know, the, the owner seemingly trolling their fans every 30 minutes on Twitter and doing other things. So, you know, by having right now, the, the third and fifth pick in the NHL draft based on that preliminary lottery, even though they didn't pick number one, they can still, you know, talk about who would we pick at three? Who would we pick at five? What if we package number three and number five and trade it up to get number one with, you know, placeholder team to be named later. Like on that angle, there's still a lot that the NHL benefits from. And the other side of it is the competitive side and the NHL benefits there too, that, you don't want teams doing what they're doing in baseball right now, which is 
just tanking it and dredging the bottom of Mariana's Trench in the Pacific Ocean to see how low and how terrible they can get, almost insulting fans every single step of the way. You do not want that. It's, it's an insult to the competitive balance. It's an insult to the spirit of the sport. And frankly, it's, it's just bad for the game. So, you know, this isn't going to keep teams honest. Like, if you're in a rebuild, you're going you're gonna to be low. Like, the, the Leafs did it. The, the Oilers perfected it. Uh, and the Red Wings have done it here. So what this does is it, it's just a, a mechanism to keep teams a bit honest, to say, look, just because you finish 31st overall is not a guarantee that you're going to get this once-in-a-generation player. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, – the, the downside is I'm – do you think that Detroit intentionally tanked this year, or do you think that Detroit was in a just a massive rebuild? Yeah, I mean, Detroit's in a massive rebuild, but you can look at teams that have tanked. I mean, the Buffalo – Oh, for sure, Buffalo, yes. And what this does is it prevents that. And if it doesn't prevent that, it, it's at least you know a safeguard to say you're not going to get guaranteed this player. You're not you're not going to get Connor McDavid just because you finished dead last. Um, you're not going to get Austin Matthews just because you finished dead last. It's a possibility. The odds will certainly be better in your favor, but you're not guaranteed. So just because you know you pull the shoot and you sign Scott Radley to be your third pairing defense um, doesn't mean that you know you're going to get the number one pick overall. Well, if you put me as your third line defense and put you as my partner, I guarantee you'll have the first overall draft pick. They will make a special papal exemption to guarantee. They champions the first overall draft pick that often. Though. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's the recipe you're cooking right there, Scotty. No, I, I, and again, like the draft lottery, I get, I get all the stuff about protecting against tanking and everything else. I, I don't believe that Detroit this year intentionally tanked for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them, and maybe I'm being naive, I give Steve Eiserman more credit and credibility than that. And again, I may be just fooling myself. And now I look at this and I think, yeah, but in a year when they just happen to be bad as opposed to dishonest bad, they get screwed out of the first pick and they're going to get an okay player, but not the kind of player that you should get if you're the absolutely worst team. And I know there's no system, Sean, that is perfect. I mean, there is no system that is perfect, and I get that, and I don't know how you get around it somehow. Maybe somehow just increase the odds for the last place team so it's not a slight advantage over everyone else, but it's you may not get it, but you still probably should. Well, I mean, there's a bunch of ways you could change the draft, right? Like you could go to the soccer system, the European soccer system, where the richest teams, you, you take the reins off, and the richest teams just buy whomever they want so that... You know, you have the Carolina Hurricanes, maybe they have the best scouting department, but the New York Rangers have more money, so they end up turning the Hurricanes into a farm team. Or or maybe you start drafting them when they start drafting in baseball. Or maybe you do something else, which is, you know, something along the lines of the NFL, where maybe you make these guys go to college or something. Like, you know, out of the realm, like <laughs> off the wall, out of the box. Um, there's ways to do it, but with the systems that are in place right now, I think the lottery is probably the smartest way to continue. Sean Fitzgerald, Managing Editor and Feature Writer with The Athletic. Always appreciate the time, Sean. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to that third-pairing defense. Yes, I'll be working on it. Um, It'll be as good as my golfing. Let's put it that way. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. If, like me, you grew up in the 1980s, my next guest is not only a legend, 
but he is part of the soundtrack of your life, which I know is trite and sounds cliche and on and on, but it's true. Rockland Wonderland and Rock and Roll Duty and Expedition Sailor and Go for a Soda and All We Are and I Am a Wild Party. You know all those songs. They're all very familiar. And as I say, if you, like me, are a child of the 80s and Patio Lanterns comes on the radio, there is zero chance you are not singing along to that song. The guy behind all that has a new album coming out. It's called The Big Fantasize. It's his first album in 13 years. The other day, the first single from that album was released. It's called Wishes. His name is Kim Mitchell, like I need to tell you that. And he joins me now. Kim, how are you today? Hey, Scott. How are you doing, man? I'm great. How are you? Thrilled to talk to you. Big fan for years and years. I'm not really supposed to say that, right? I'm not supposed to suck up to the guests, but it's true. Big fan. <laughs> hey, well, that was a very nice intro you, you did there. Uh, so thank you very much for that, man. Well, you know, you do have, and, and you know, I, like I think of them off the top of my head. I looked it up today and I started going through the list. You have an awful lot of songs that have burned into people's brains over the years, which I would think is mostly a blessing. I'm wondering if there's any other side to it, though, because you can't escape those songs now. That's who you are. <laughs> is this where I apologize? I'm not sure. I don't think so. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's actually quite humbling, Scott, to... Uh, you know, have people come up to me. I'm quite an approachable guy. Come up to me and, and say some of the things that you just said, and uh, to realize that you were just a small part of the soundtrack to their lives, like a small piece of musical fabric in their lives. That's uh, that means so much more to me than a gold or platinum album hanging on the wall. It's absolutely, uh, it, it's amazing. How often does it happen, though, Kim? How often does it happen, even today, that people will come up and tell you something about a song that that you wrote or that they uh, they heard or that was well, in part of their life? A, a good question. First, first of all, I look quite a bit different now, so a lot of people <laughs> don't recognize me. They expect to see an OPP hat, and I have a little story about that actually. So, not everybody knows who I am, but th those that do, who have seen me with my head shaved and all that stuff, it's. I'm going to say it happens, uh, you know, once a week, I guess, when I'm out. But it's okay. I, I love meeting. I love meeting music fans. I just love meeting human beings in general. Or that's what I love to do. I mean, I think we all do. So, um, and generally, they just want to say hello. And 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 I, you know, this. I used to play this song in my truck on eight track, or I used to do this, or. My girlfriend left me because I played you too much. That actually happened once. <laughs> really? I met this girl. I met this lovely woman at the gym once. I was working out. She came and she goes, are you Kim Mitchell? And, she, and I said, yeah. She goes, well, she goes, my boyfriend's a huge fan of yours. As a matter of fact, he's such a huge fan. He played your music all the time, so much. In fact, it kind of drove me nuts and I broke up with him. And her and I had such a laugh over that. We ended up dating for a couple of months. <laughs> and and the, of course i wouldn't play my own songs you know I, I was gonna say yeah uh, it, are you are you a guy though that that is okay when like some some artists almost feel awkward when people come up and tell personal stories about what happened when the music was playing are you good with that or is it a little awkward no it's not awkward at all it, it's it's a lovely feeling that as i was mentioning it's quite humbling to go wow thank you so much for you to tell me that story that, you know, that I'm a small piece of, of your musical fabric in your, in your life. I just, uh, my, it blows my mind actually. So. Because you know, you're, when you're doing it, Scott, when you're making these songs, you don't know what's going to happen 20, 30 years down the line. You're just making a rock and roll song and in, in your little studio or, 
in a, in a backstage area, the idea comes to you or when you're driving around Hamilton or whatever you're doing and you get these ideas and you record them and you have no idea what's, how they're going to turn out. Well, okay. So people know the songs, they play them in their car, they play them in their truck, they play them at home, whatever else. I've asked a couple other people about this who have had success. When What's the experience like though of standing up on stage and you start playing a song that you wrote, that you've created and you have a crowd singing your song back to you. That feeling, that must, that to me, that's the ultimate thing where you, for an artist, I would think. You totally, 100% right. It's, it's, it's what, it's what we're, it's why we're doing it um, to transmit musical energy. That's why I'm doing it. I like, I love getting together with musicians and we start to transmit that musical energy on stage. We connect and, that energy reaches out into an audience and it's a song they recognize and they give back just as much as you're giving them. And it's just a, it's a beautiful feeling. We all sort of take off and you use this word in your intro. We all sort of take off into Rockland Wonderland for a couple hours. And cause you know, we all have challenges in life. We're, nothing's perfect. So my job on this planet, I mean, if we're here all here to do something for the planet or humankind, my job is to, help people escape for a couple hours to, in, into music, into song. Do you remember the first time that happened when you heard them singing back and went, Whoa, they know my song. Uh, yeah, I do. It was uh, the first record. Um, uh, Max, it was actually Max Webster days back in the seventies. Now we're, now I'm really dating myself, but the late seventies, Max Webster and um, just our first record and going on stage in a bar like Duffy's in Hamilton. Right. I don't know whether anyone would remember that place, but it was a bar then and people singing, singing the songs off the first record while we were playing. It's quite, quite the feeling. It's like, wow, that's amazing. And they so, weren't throwing anything. So that's <laughs> <laughs> Well, unless you're Tom Jones and they're throwing underwear, then I suppose maybe it's different, but. No, um, no we slight, never got to that. <laughs> slightly different act. Kim Mitchell, Tom Jones, slightly different. Uh, so you don't know, though, when you say that you have no idea what's going to happen with those songs, you, you don't sit there when you finish a song and go, you know what, that one's going to be great. That one's going to be a hit. You don't you don't have any sense of that? No, 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 no. You know what the, the key to, to all this is? And I keep saying this to young artists who ask me for any advice. It's like, just get your music to where you love it. So you get the song to where you love it. That's like rock and roll duty is like wow okay yeah that's cool i like that i really like that but not i i can never say i might have joked about it sometimes like hey i bet this will do well i've never really thought seriously in the in that way i'm just sort of like well i love this song I, I can't wait to play it for everyone and then next thing you know or go for soda had no idea we're just recording in the studio i'm like oh yeah that's a good take okay let's do this actually my record producer uh, is friends with Quincy Jones. And he said when they were making Thriller, Michael Jackson's Thriller, he said it was kind of the exact same process. They were just in the studio going, hey, that's a cool part. This, they weren't sitting there going, all right, we're going to make a hit record. It was just, oh, that's kind of a neat vibe. Let's let's ride on that for a while. Okay, yeah, well, why don't you sing this, Michael? I'm like, okay, yeah, cool. They just kind of threw it together like that. You um you used to do what I'm doing. You used to host a radio show and you did a great job at it. Um, you, and you. you did a thing in the radio called "I Wish I Wrote That." Mm-hmm. What is well, you? You did a lot of those, and, and it was you sitting down and talking about songs that you loved. Mm-hmm. What would be a song or two now that even as you've had time to think about it, that man you wish of all the songs that you've heard that you wish you could have written? Uh, 
Well, there's too many. Uh, like you're asking me a, a, a really tough question to sort of narrow it down to a couple because I, they're all it's just so much amazing stuff out there. I'm going to say when the levee breaks, Led Zeppelin, um, Dreams by Van Halen. Um, uh, you know, I love uh, I love some of the Rival Sun stuff. They're sort of a, a younger rock band. Uh, there's just so many great songs at this point. The, the world is flooded with amazing mm. music. And, and what I love about creativity is it's not regional. It can be from Saskatoon. It can be from Ancaster. It can be from Sudbury. It can be from wherever. Great songs can come out of anywhere now. And I, I'm guessing, uh, based on everything I've ever heard from every other artist, that if you say, you know, I love Led Zeppelin or I love Van Halen, if you sat down to write one of their songs, you probably wouldn't do it well. You've got to write Kim Mitchell. Um, Good point. Good point. It's, it's, we're all stylized. We all, all this stuff washes over us. Yeah, we're influenced by, you know, it's influenced by Hendrix. I grew up 40 minutes from Detroit, Michigan. So I was, my whole record collection wasn't Beatles records. It was Motown records. And I'm not sure you hear any of that in my in my music, but I just love that music, the loud tambourine and the infectious hooks and the bass playing by James Jamerson. I mean, that stuff was really reached inside. And, and so Van Halen's and Led Zeppelin's, as you're growing up, all these bands have some sort of influence on you. But when it comes out into your medium uh, or your art, it's you. It has to be you. And that's that's what you have to strive for as a musician is that, yeah, I like this. what this person does. Yeah, I like what this person does. I'm going to try and cop a bit of that. But really, find your own music. Find your own 12 notes to work with and just get it to where you love it. So it's been 13 years since you had an album out. Um, is writing... <laughs> why, is hurry, writing <laughs> why hurry into things? Well, <laughs> but is writing, is writing music like riding a bike? I mean, is it, do you just pick it up or does it take a while to really remember how to do it well? Um. I was just thinking this as I was parking my car a few minutes ago. It's just like painters have to paint, dancers have to dance, musicians, writers, songwriters have to write songs. And so that's what I do now. So I've been kind of doing it my whole career. Would I have recorded this album? Probably not. I have a whole studio album. Wishes just came out, but I have a whole studio album waiting. And would I have recorded it? Maybe not. Because it wasn't until my producer, Greg Wells, who's done Pink, Katy Perry, One Republic, you know, uh, Keith Urban. He was a friend of mine and he was in my band at 17. He said, will you please come to Los Angeles? I want to record these songs because this is a side of you that I think people love, but they haven't heard enough of it from you. Like they know Logger Nail. They know I am a wild party. They know Gopher. So they know your party tunes. But they also know all we are, and they know Easy to Tame, and they, they react to that stuff, too. So these are great songs in that sort of direction, so let's do that. And so I got on board with it, but I probably would have just sat around and gone, well, I don't need to record again. But he was the one who sort of pushed me into it. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I remember hearing an interview with Billy Joel a little while ago, who I don't know when the last album was that he recorded, and he specifically said that. I got to a point when people loved my music and I just didn't feel I had to do it anymore. And yet other people, other artists, you know, the music has to burst out of them somewhere. Yeah. You know, depending, you know, when, when artists say stuff like what Billy Joel says, it might've been the day that he was being asked that question. I, Cause I'm of the mindset. I understand what he's saying. 
when people go to his show, they want to hear the stuff that they know, and they come to my show and they want to hear the stuff that, that they know. But for me, part of life's journey is that I'm a songwriter, and I, I have to write songs. Whether, you know, whether they get onto an album, whether they get released is another thing. I think the journey of writing a song, recording it, and then the journey stops for me. Because there's nothing you can do beyond that to have people love it uh, or wh- whoever's going to buy it, whoever's going to download it, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. You have no control over that. So for me, uh, my advice once again to musicians is really enjoy the journey of songwriting because it's, it's I, I like to draw, you were mentioning hockey and the, and the drafts and all that. I, I like to mention like when people go, okay, so how do you make it? I'm like, well, wait a second. If you were trying to be in the NHL, chances are you're not going to be in the NHL, but you can enjoy playing hockey every day. You can work really hard at it. You can really enjoy the game, but it just may not be your living. So you get the same feeling as a musician. If you're playing in a garage in front of your buds or drinking a case of beer or whether you're on stage in front of 20,000 people, as soon as that those musicians connect and start to generate that musical energy, it's the exact same feeling in the garage as Brian Adams is getting or Kim Mitchell or Rush or any one of them. It's just at the end of the day, the numbers are a bit different. Yeah, and you mentioned well, you mentioned Brian Adams. Last time I saw you play uh, was here at First Ontario Centre. Brian Adams was playing, and you were up on stage with Randy Bachman, and uh, and the three of you were going at it for a bit. Uh, is there somebody I asked you about songs you wish you wrote? Is there you've played with pretty much everybody in Canadian music? Is there somebody that you still wish you could play with? Uh, in Canada, well, anywhere, yeah, anywhere. Yeah, sure. I'd love to collaborate with. Guys like Brian Adams, such a great songwriter. I'd love to do something with Justin Bieber. I think the kid is so talented. He's a young man. I, I just shouldn't call him a kid, but uh, you know, he's he's so amazing. Uh, just just I think mixing up different genres of music and collaborating. I'd love to see a lot more of that in Canada. I know it's done in the states and with pop music, and it's done a lot with hip hop. But uh, it would be awesome to see a little more of that done here in Canada. Do you, um, we only have a couple minutes left. Do you, are you a guy who lets pressure get to you? Because you do have this long list of songs people know, and now you're putting out a new album. Does it ever dawn on you and go, oh man, you know, it's got to be at least as good as those ones. Or do you just say, no, take it or leave it. Here's my music. Um, there's a little bit of both, Scott. You, I'll, I'll have the odd sleepless night. We all do. We all want people to like what we do. But at the same time, I'm at the point in my life where, hey, I really enjoyed these songs. I recorded them, and they're at a place where I love them. And beyond that, there's nothing really I can do. So if people like it, awesome. If they don't, then there's nothing I can really do about it. So, But, yeah, there's pressure. We all have put pressure on ourselves to hold the bar high and, and to do a good job. So. Well, and that's a good thing, right? I mean, there wouldn't be yeah. pressure if you hadn't been successful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's good pressure. Why the, so the title of your new album is The Big Fantasize. Why, why, where did that name come from? <laughs> well, it's just, it, there's a long list of titles and, and I just came up with a bunch. I saw some stuff. I saw some, he, the dude who helped me write the album, he sent, he would, in his emails were very creative and these are lines, there'd be all these lines 
just in his emails. And one of them was the big fantasize. And I think it had to do with doing the project again and the big fantasize of it going well and actually doing something. And, and I latched onto it because I think we all still love to fantasize and dream no matter where we are in life. If you're, you know, solid, successful person or, or wherever you are in life, whether you're, you're having a real challenging time, we always have that fantasy, those dreams that sort of help us get through the day sometimes. It is, uh, it is the newest uh, piece of uh, what, as I'm looking at it right now, a long list of, uh, of an unbelievable career. Listen, uh, Kim Mitchell, thrilled to have you on. Thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Hey, Scott. It's nice chatting with you, man. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.